In the face of the current atrocities perpetrated against the Ukrainian people by the government of Russia, we want to make you all aware of an opportunity to provide free therapy to those most impacted by the war in Ukraine. The organization called It's Complicated has created a platform for therapists from all around the world to offer their services for free. Particularly if you speak Ukrainian or Russian, please consider creating a profile at itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. It's Complicated is providing a secure online platform to conduct the sessions and will match people needing support with available therapists free of charge. Please consider creating a profile to provide free therapy to those impacted by the war. Go to itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. We want to give you an update about somatic integration and processing trainings coming up. SIP1 and SIP2 are both approved for 21 NBCC hours, and we have big news. They are also each approved for 10 hours of approved advanced credit through IMDRIA. So if you're working on your EMDR certification, SIP trainings can count towards your needed advanced training hours. We're so excited to be able to offer this to all of you. More exciting news is that we're offering SIP-1 for an Australian time zone. On July 22nd through the 24th, we will host a virtual training starting at 7 a.m. UTC plus 10. If you're in another time zone, you're welcome to attend this one as well. But we've had so many people from Australia reach out about SIP that we wanted to make it more accessible for all of you. We also have SIP-1 available in American time zones on June 23rd through the 25th, and again on October 20th through the 22nd. Go to our website for all this info and more at beyondhealingcenter.com or email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Caleb and I are back in the studio Another episode. Another episode in the new season. Uh, we are talking today about a 2015 article um, on memory reconsolidation um, by Bruce Ecker, which is one of the um, <clears throat> more kind of, I, I would say, concise authors on this topic from a psychotherapy standpoint. Many have contributed to the literature on uh, memory reconsolidation as it's a just natural, organic, human biological process. But when it comes to its relevance in therapy and how to be intentional with this human uh, just neurological reality, Bruce Ecker, Laurel Hooley, um, and others. Yeah, Tizich and um, just m many of the people kind of in that realm are, are talking about this. And this article uh, is a big one. Um, it's yeah, kind of compiling, beefy. yeah, it's compiling 
much of what has been said um, across the various human science disciplines about memory reconsolidation. And what Bruce Ecker is doing in this article is compiling them into uh, the misconceptions, misunderstandings, and how we uh, should understand memory reconsolidation theory to be correctly understood or more more correctly understood. Yeah, and I like that you kind of allude to um, his role in this research coming into psychotherapeutics because yeah. one of his postural kind of presentations at the start of the article is that, hey, I've I've been in this, I've been following this field and looking to integrate it into psychotherapeutic work mm -hmm. for 20 years. And I've noticed that sometimes as a counseling field, we have this ability, this kind of blind spot mm. in which we get really excited about the newest thing and we run farther than the research is telling us to run. Yeah. And then we make some critical errors. Yes. And so his sort of posture in writing this paper, which is huge. It's, I, I think we joked, it's like 45 pages long, mm -hmm. uh, dual column. Um, it's, it's a very intense article, but his posture is memory reconsolidation is too important of a, mm. Um, field of study discovery that it, we can't get bogged down by misconceptions too early. Yeah, we need to really make sure we're cons concise with the research from the get go, so that it's it's we don't fumble with this ball. It's too important. Yeah, and we were talking about this before we started recording. Um, that it's amazing that despite some of these kind of declarations to the field, these calls to action um, that are not just here, that, you know, different authors across time have made these in very important publications. And yet we're still in a lot of ways doing that kind of quibbling over um, misunderstandings that are based off of skewed interpretations of the original research and are then talking about that instead of how to better understand and apply memory reconsolidation to a lot of the work that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And to think that this was seven years ago Yeah, now, seven written seven years ago. So, I mean, even then we're still yeah, like catching up to Ecker who's catching up to some of the first people who are making these discoveries. Mm -hmm. And so our, I feel like our posture is somewhat the same mm -hmm. in that we want therapists to know this and to know both like what it is and also what it's not. Yeah. To, to kind of be more precise. Yes. And also, what a beautiful posture modeled from Ecker yeah. to say that therapists can and ought to be connected to research in a like generous but also like rigid manner. Mm -hmm. like, we should be kind of oriented and know how to, I mean, this is like classic grad school, right? Mm. Like you should know how to read research and to write it if you need. Yeah. And that's kind of like, that's great for grad school, right? But it can't end there. Yeah. 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 And I think that, you know, just setting kind of the expectations for this article being that it is 45 pages, what we've talked about, and as we kind of are just in normal life, kind of open to changing this, but we're going to go through the first three today and see how that feels and see where the conversation goes, because it's not just about consuming research that we just get through the 45 pages, but it's about applying this to our work mm. and to what else we're thinking. So I just wanted to make space for that for you and I today. But then uh, the next plan is to do the next three, if that still feels good, and then finish with the last four. 
and from there apply some of the implications even farther once we've tackled all 10. Yeah. A wonderful three-part series. Yeah. Which pretty like it's weird that that's happened a couple times now. Yes. But yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. I like it. To me, it, it illuminates what we talked about last episode or actually two episodes ago of the intro into the season is this like recognition that, you know, we read so you don't have to is kind of the desire of the podcast. Mm. And also, if you really want to grow and learn more, please read with us. Right. And there's going to be so much in this article that we are not going to hit on mm-hmm. that we could easily spin up and make a whole like 10 part series on. Yeah. But we're, we're trying to limit ourselves to three parts. That's right. Which is both like a compromise and saying kind more s- that can be in one episode, yeah. but also not saying all that there is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we've talked about memory consolidation quite a bit at this point on the podcast. So I just want to maybe prime the conversation with let's talk a little bit about eraser versus extinction mm-hmm. and then maybe the definition or some of the seminal understandings of memory consolidation. Perhaps then we could read the misconceptions and then each one and kind of take them apart. Yeah. What do you yeah. think of that? Sounds perfect. Cool. So eraser versus extinction. This is something that we've talked about from the beginning of our conversations on memory reconsolidation. And it's, I mean, could not be more relevant to the field of psychotherapy. Extinction, um, just by very kind of entry understanding, is our process that is when we contemplate change from a behavioral standpoint, extinction is a process of learning that can be enacted to um, essentially um, depotentiate or to um, change the original emotional learning and its behavior through a competing uh, behavioral learning. Yeah. It's a reprioritization. Right. So if I, if I used to do one strategy, I'm going to through a system of like almost forced learning. We use drinking as like, or like substance abuse in the last episode. Great example. Yeah. So I'll go, instead of drinking, I'll go running. Right. And it's just a, you know, given the right environment, amount of stressors, sensory stimuli, Mm -hmm the reactivation of the old emotional learning correlated and associated with drinking can still emerge and come up. Right. But through a series of kind of forced learnings, we've reprioritized that Mm. function in our brain, that uh, secondary process of learning. Right. And reprioritized the running as more important. Yes. And through processes of behavioral conditioning like rewards, um, have made that the now uh, first response. Yeah. And which is great. I mean, when you're wanting to change behavior immediately um, from a you know uh, health standpoint, it can be very effective and pretty oh, yeah. simple. Quick symptom reduction. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just, let's find the real desire. Let's change. Yeah. Yeah. And so extinction, and this is something Ecker talks about at length, is an unhelpful word. Um, in that regard, because it's not to say that it's extinct, um, as in dead, never coming back to life. Yeah. Extinction in this way just means that the behavioral manifestation of whatever that pairing was with the original emotional learning will not be carried out only because it has a second, uh, paired response that's now been, uh, rewarded or selected as primary. Yeah. It helps a little bit to think of like how 
the field historically has developed. Like they call this extinction because mm-hmm. the symptoms that they wanted gone were gone. Right. But then when the reconsolidation field started to really get into it, they were like, oh, what extinction really is, is just a reprioritization of another strategy. Which means that the original strategy can come back. Yeah. So in that... And they kept extinction. Yes. Just that, to pay homage to the history of the yeah. development. And to show the downside in that, you know, choose running instead of drinking. Well, what happens when I break my leg and I can't run anymore? Yeah. Or I, you know, go through something that makes running feel impossible or like I don't want to do it anymore. That old strategy of drinking could come knocking and say, you know, you could. Yeah. Just oh, do you this. have stress stimuli and you can't run? Well, here's the other strategies for that. Right. And that to me is from a what... um Ecker talks about as the survival positive nature of these maladaptive patterns, because we still in so many ways need to do something with that tension. You know, we have this emotional learning that paired tension rising or stress response with drinking. We then replace that through extinction training with running, Mm -hmm. but now I can't run. So I'm just going to refer back to my still survival positive response, which is to drink again or to find some other, way of ex- of kind of exerting that tension or stress. Yeah. yeah. And then erasure right. is kind of the next evolution. And when reconsolidation became kind of an alternate process that neuroscientists were saying, oh, this is a naturally occurring biological function in the brain mm. of memory being deconsolidated, coming into a deconsolidated state, and then being open to reconsolidating with new connections new synapses being fired in connection with that so then they they started to say okay so something different from extinction happens when a memory network becomes deconsolidated and reconsolidated with a new emotional learning Mm -hmm. so then they labeled that erasure Mm. because now we're not just talking about the behavioral expressions of these networks Mm. now we're talking about the network itself those implicit emotional learnings were erased and provided a new emotional learning that was reconsolidated which had completely different implications for the system it didn't use any of the same behavioral patterns it was new in that way yes this is a little different than we talked about initially setting this episode up but i'm wondering if you want to talk about it through um rigs or through like more precise language um, from a, a learning standpoint. I don't know yeah. if that'd be helpful to you. I, I'm always down to talk about rigs. Okay, cool. Say what rigs are. Representations of interactions that have become generalized yep. is the what rig stands for. And so we in SIP2 and in, in one of our advanced trainings, we talk about the process of learning being very granular and template-based. So rigs are made up of various types of stimuli uh, experiences. So think of, you know, you touching a stove is a great example. That's hot. You have the process of approach. You have the touch, which registered the burn. You have the pull away and the cessation of pain. Mm -hmm. Pretty much trapped right there. Maybe you have an interpersonal element that says, why did you do that? Or, you know, activation around it. So now you're going to be kind of activated around stoves or hot surfaces because your body just learned, oh, if I go towards touch, I I will get burned. Mm -hmm. Because you were able to get away from it, you know that to stay away is going to 
be what we need to do. But if there's that interpersonal dynamic, then that adds a level of activation from a parent or something like that. So if we have, from a Riggs perspective, if we're looking at emotional learnings and this process of stress response leads to behavior, which in this example we're using is drinking, excuse me, we have a series of memories that have very tangibly justified that link. Um, it wasn't just one time I drank and so now I feel better or less stressed out. So now I'm just going to drink forever. It's this long buildup just as there was an approach to the stove to before we got burnt to now, you know, leading up to the selection of drinking. There may be failed strategies for dealing with stress before that, that said we need to find something else. And it was that very special moment of finding the relief or the lack of stress that drinking brought on perhaps even the interpersonal dynamic of camaraderie or isolation. It could go either way on that. Frequence of different contexts then generalizes in the brain. That yes, that really insulated that network in its, in its condensed rig form that now the behavior pairing is, is fairly resistant to change. And you can't just tug on one end of the rig and hope the whole thing kind of unthreads itself. It's very insulated because, and what I love so much about that survival positive language is we build on templates of the past because that's what we have evolutionarily determined to be our best chance for survival in the present. If I can learn from my past and be constantly sort of assessing it subconsciously and letting that inform the strategies I use in the present, I'm likely going to have a better chance for survival than if I were just to go into it with a blank slate. Yeah. Anticipation breeds Mm -hmm. survival. Exactly. So from a, you know, looking at this concept of erasure, this is profound. I mean, it's, and, and I love some of the language that they throw out in what the process of erasure or of memory reconsolidation is really for, um, which is looking at it from a, it's preferentially strengthens recent learnings or it allows new learning experiences to update. So this is what memory reconsolidation is really doing, which is strengthening new learnings or updating older learnings through, um, you know, maybe it's a new stimuli that it's updating it with, or it's a new context, interpersonal dynamic, et cetera. But it's it's for the process of mo- modifying those original rigs as they're collected and stored. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And one of the things I think it's in one of the misconceptions that we'll talk about. I think today. Yeah, is I think this, it's in the first one. Yeah, the idea of that reconsolidation does not mean change to network mm-hmm. because I can deconsolidate through with the provision of a mismatched experience. Mm-hmm. I can deconsolidate the memory network and it can be that memory network if it doesn't have a new learning placed with it mm-hmm. will reconsolidate with the nuanced stimuli. Yeah. So which, it will and this is where you get into like these really complex we you know we call them pro symptom beliefs mm-hmm. in which they're tertiary processes that that insulate why do we keep maintaining this this secondary process of learning? Mm-hmm. Even though we have these mismatched stimuli that tell us 
maybe we should change. Mm. Well, there's no, there's been no provision and it's not been safe enough to try a new emotional yeah. learning. So then we're going to collapse into the same strategy with, that we've been trying, but mm. maybe we find a release of the tension in our ability to make meaning on why it's not working rather than get the actual relief that the secondary learning is seeking. Yeah. Which I love kind of looking at it from that perspective because to me, you know, and in the article, even it talks about how, when that happens, when you have the process of deconsolidation presence of, of mismatched experience, but it's not, it's, it's either not timed right, or it's not in the presence of a safe environment. It will actually make that network once it's reconsolidated more resistant to yeah, change stronger. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. And thus, you know, he talks about Eckhart talks about depression being in this way. One of the most difficult things, uh, difficult experiences and symptoms and kind of strategy bundles to change because it's so well insulated. It is kind of, we talk about it sometimes as booby trapped. Mm-hmm. it has already built within it defense mechanisms for the way of changing because it's not survival positive to contemplate changing the expression and experience of depression. Yeah. 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 PTSD uh, I, and anxiety are much the same, but yeah. yeah. And if I've like depression is a really good example because you can, you can socially acceptably, you can be socially acceptable and be presenting, experiencing this sort of depressive mm-hmm. lifestyle and f- like find justifications and ways of maintaining that, that, that socially don't require, like it doesn't, maybe we have these like cultural beliefs that they're just a quiet person. They're just an introvert. Mm. They're just not like extroverted like me or, you know, you can name any sort of cultural objectification we have for that. Yeah. But the, the point being that, the longer that emotional learning is maintained, when we go to reactivate and the mismatch, Ecker talks about you have to have a heightened yes. amount of reactivation and it mismatch. Match. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that has been subcortically insulated yes. for years. And the the amount of times that that, that network mm-hmm. has deconsolidated and reconsolidated with a nuanced stimuli. Mm. This is like when you're sitting in sessions and you feel like the brain has an answer for every like mi- potential mismatch. Yeah. Or potential prediction error, like they have a story about every potential like yeah, but like what about this and they have a story for that. That to me is evidence that this this subcortical network has grown and mm-hmm. and been deconsolidated, reconsolidated. So many times it's well insulated. Yes. And it's going to take us some time. It's going to take take us some multiple contexts and some different ways of processing probably to to match what's needed to really reactivate and to mismatch. In in this beginning section, I'm going to read just directly from the article because it gives an example that I think could be like great to talk about. But at the bottom of page four, top of page three, it says, for example, if a small child consistently receives frightening anger from a parent in response to the child expressing needs, the child learns not to express or even feel needs or distress and not to expect understanding or comfort from others. This learning can occur with no representation in conscious thoughts or conceptualization. What that means there is like, it's not directly taught that Mm -hmm. I'm angry because you're expressing needs. So don't do that anymore. No. Yeah. yeah. Not expressly, not expressly taught like that. So no concept or, uh, 
no conceptualization um, or representation and entirely in the implicit learning system. The child configures him or herself according to this adaptive learning in order to minimize suffering in that family environment. So it's just easier for me to take on the belief that I should stop what my system has indicated as the origin of my parents' anger. It was because I expressed my need that I got this response. Therefore, I should not express my needs anymore. Yeah. And I hope listeners are like, and I'm sure they are, like queuing into this is attachment theory. Yes. What you're talking about is it. I thought of Crittenden and Perry throughout oh, this yes. entire article. Oh, yeah. 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 And Perry being neurosequential firing. Memories patterns. of fear. Yeah. Memories mm-hmm. of fear in which there's a neurosequential flow through the brain. Um, my brain was also going to pong set mm-hmm. of what, what um, Ecker is talking about are these secondary processes that pong set says happen um, in the region of the basal ganglia. And then another author talks about the role of the cerebellum and mitigating you the secondary. Look at that periaqueductal gray. Yes, the periaqueductal gray. I, I have trouble saying it every time, so I just say PAG. But yeah, yeah, like yeah, looking at how affect explodes, and that's like a biological. Like everyone has that, but then we come to learn that my my incarnation, my inhabiting, my affect creates ripple effects in the environment. Yeah. And if those ripple effects are um, displeasurable or inhibit me getting my homeostatic needs met, then I will start to inhibit. Yeah. I will start to learn inhibition and difference. And that's where rigs get created and that's where templates memories for the personal dynamics. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And he quotes Shore here, or at least references uh, in talking about these subcortical storings of implicit memory, um, wherein it's different than these neocortical regions of explicit memory uh, with episodic autobiographical and declarative knowledge in it. So it's not going to be registered in the who am I mm-hmm. headspace. It's deeper than that. It's before you can even ask that question, these things are already navigating the parameters. It makes me think of, this is really going off the page here, but yeah. of our conceptualization of the unconscious, subconscious, conscious. Um, when we're talking about these types of learnings, these are in that liminal space between unconscious and subconscious that are forming now what will come into our consciousness. Like before anything even comes into our consciousness, it must pass through these implicit emotional emotional learnings that are filled with all kinds of um, unconscious and subconscious material. Yeah. Um, I just think that's a really helpful way to think about it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and you know when we say these are subcortical processes, mm-hmm. this is below explicit awareness. It doesn't mean that you can't be, it, they can't emerge into conscious awareness, but they have to be emergent processes that bubble up into consciousness. So yeah. an awareness, explicit articulation. So, yeah, I love that. Mm. When you said that liminal space, my gut was like, yeah, that that potentially emergent space. Yes. I love that conjunction, potentially emergent. To me, that's just so honoring of what that space actually feels like to me as I think about it, as I sit with people in it, as I think of my own. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to. But when it does, this is what it's shaped by. Yeah. is like how I feel. Yeah. Which like even memory reconsolidation has an 
emergent based framework Mm -hmm. in which one stimuli, a, a social learning, mismatched by another stimuli, what emerges is a deconsolidation. Mm. You take the deconsolidation process, which is emergent from the cue and the mismatch, then you add a new learning. What mm. do you get? You get a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. So the whole process of reconsolidation is an emergent process. Yes. Which makes so much sense. Like, I, That's the why of, it works. Yeah, yeah. The number of times I'm just saying, like, please go. Go read Dan Siegel talk about emergent processes. emergent processes because like that is so helpful in these conversations. And for me as the clinician therapist, like walking through this process of are we really reconsolidating networks? Yeah. Um, thinking like, and I use this language, like what if we just like hold those two things together? Like what emerges? Mm. Well, this may be need that I need to change or that I need to try something different, that it doesn't work. Okay, now let's mm. put in that new learning. What's something we could do differently? What what comes up then? Yeah. Does that feel more right, feel more accurate? Mm. Do you get a somatic release from that? Yes. Well, then let's let's be there. Let's mm-hmm. sit with that Yeah. and then let it reconsolidate. Yes, I love that. And that, to me, is so honoring of this unconscious through into conscious process, mm. but it's so invitational at the same time because we can't force this. Extinction can be forced. I can put you through an extinction training yeah. and virtually change any of the behaviors that you're conducting. The right amount of stress right. and the right amount of like lack of needs met. There's potentiation. You're right there. You're ready to go. But it won't hold after you leave me. Yeah. Like if it's working in our relationship, if I'm extinguishing behavior, it's because your system has determined that this for some reason is something you need to pay attention to and adopt. But then once you leave this context, there's no reason for you to continue that. Yeah. Why are you stopping drinking? Like if you really think about it, is it because you want to change or is it because others want you to change? Hmm. That's where you start to see, you know, so much emphasis placed on owning this addiction because it is something that in you is a link between something much deeper that you're then choosing this pattern of behavior to, to materialize, to, to, or to displace away from instead of actually addressing what it's really about, which that to me, you know, I'm not at this moment talking about one way or the other of what you should do from a (laughs) addiction treatment standpoint. Well, yeah. Cause we, I mean, we mentioned earlier, there's it, it, and this is so much of psychotherapy feels this way because it's humans. Mm-hmm. Like there's a time and a place for everything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I do just need to add a little bit of pressure to this session mm-hmm. and let's get some behavioral shifts and some extinction going because right now, like there's a ripple effects of like bad things happening if yeah. we just keep going. Right. So then let's just, get a quick shift, but know that we're going to come back once yeah. we found grounding, once we found anchoring, once we found other ways of being mm. that are a little bit more stable than, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's go back. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you just got your third DUI, your license taken away. You might get your kid taken away. I would love to like find some different strategies right now. Like so bad. <laughs> like let's change this 
from an extinction standpoint so that we can start to free you up to have new experiences out in the world yeah. that we can partner with in a disconfirming way to start the erasure process of really dealing with the trauma that's underneath it all. Yeah. And you can take neurobiologically that new strategy that is totally like, um, ooh, I'm going to say this and people are going to be confused, disassociated, not dissociated. Those are two different things. Two soapbox of mine. This is a great that I will never, way of actually teaching the difference. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. so often we just get to correct people. Yes. It's dissociation is the process. Yes. But yeah, yeah. what we're talking about right now are two networks that are disassociated. Yes. There's no neurosynaptic connection between the two networks. Mm -hmm. These are different state dependent firings. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't deconsolidate the old network through a mismatch mm -hmm. and call upon. It. Yeah. Yeah call upon the newer strategy as the resourced new learning that then connects, associates with this old strategy and produces an erasure. Yeah. And like, then that network comes over and joins. And yeah. that's like a metaphorical way of talking about it. But but let's keep running instead of drinking. Yes. Like we can do that process of completely erasing the emotional learning that tied itself to drinking and pair it instead with in like uh interoceptive processes and running yeah like let's look inward and have a great way to blow off some steam yeah that's a beautiful beautiful way to talk about it i love that yeah let's jump We're in like 30 minutes in and yeah <laughs> yeah thanks for the for bearing with us in that long intro yeah it felt very necessary yeah to me it feels really important because as ecker's getting into it more and more you know these are subcortical processes which means we have a tough time even really talking about them like they're going on below our conscious awareness and so we have to use a lot of this unconscious metaphor uh, or emergent metaphor to really get at them um, and so for me what i wanted is even for you and i just to be able to explore some together so oh, yeah the box is checked for me yeah beautiful beautiful misconception number one i'm an, i'll just read it just and then we'll it. just talk about it um, and again, you may feel like all of these misconceptions, there's like precise language that is either added or subtracted on purpose. And that's why it's a misconception. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, his, this first one's a tricky one. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. what? So the reconsolidation process is triggered by the reactivation of a target learning or memory. Can you tell me, Bridger, why is that a misconception? It's that word triggered. Yeah. To me. Because it, at the base of it, I read it and I was like, <laughs> um, wait, so we're not supposed to start the target learning? Yeah. We don't want to like bring it back up? What do you mean? It it has nothing to do in itself um, with triggering that initial emotional learning, the process of reconsolidation. It has to do with this mismatched experience. Yeah. The necessity of the mismatched experience. So I actually rewrote it when I was writing it down. I wrote reconsolidation is triggered through retrieval, mm. which is to me really illustrative of that's not true. Mm -hmm. You can retrieve all day long. That doesn't mean you're going to change anything. You're just exercising memory at that point. Yeah. Reactivation is just reactivation. Right. That's why we don't, we call 
reconsolidation, something different. Right. And thank goodness that's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> like after writing that, it's like, oh gosh, every time I go back to a process, will it change? Yeah. Could you that's imagine that for positive experiences? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Positive experiences. Yes. You mean if I re-experience a positive experience and then something goes wrong, I'm doomed? Like it's never going to be good It's again? just going to be bad forever. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> that would not be a good mental no, I'm structure. I'm so glad that I, I can like that that can crystallize and maintain over time um same with these unconscious behavior patterns like driving like every time i would retrieve in my body the process of like steering a vehicle with it could change it could change it's almost comedic yeah. in a way <laughs> like that would that would be terrible but in this wording the reason it's i think so promoted in the reconsolidation process is triggered by the reactivation of a target learning or memory this gets at some of the fine-tuning of evidence-based uh, efficacy studies that have tried to engage the process of uh, reactivation for the purposes of reconsolidation and have not gotten the results that reconsolidation research uh, expresses, that yeah, yeah. we can actually erase. Um, they'll get extinction-based findings and things like that. So what, um, what Ecker goes on to talk about is the necessity for the mismatched experience or the prediction error. I Yes, I love that you brought up prediction error because I think that's a helpful that's, like, con- connotation to what, what do we mean mismatched I mean, experience. that's better than mismatch. Like I like prediction error. It's more descriptive. Like I feel it more yeah. than mismatch. Yeah, especially because we know the brain as one giant anticipatory machine. Yeah. That's like true. It it is it is attempting to predict. one conserve energy and two predict and respond accurately Thank and you, efficiently. Dan Siegel. Yes, prediction yeah. making machines. Yes, yeah. That so and to, to predictions like he talks about this the relativity of mismatch experiences. Yeah, MRMR is the acronym that he uses uh, that I find so helpful. We have to be talking about. Mismatch, memory, reconsolidation, mismatch, relativity, mm-hmm. MRMR. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that, like, it, there's so many things that go, there's so much sensory motor affective experience that goes into a social and emotional learning. Which make up a rig. Like, that to yeah. me, I love talking about it from that perspective. Yes. That, like, my mismatch, my mismatch experience to the same stimuli where we both have like the same like behavioral expression of a learned behavior, my mismatched experience may be time. Mm. Like I predict that something's going to happen in five minutes and mm-hmm. you predict it in 10 minutes and the stimuli comes in 10 minutes. Well, that deconsolidates my network. Yeah, because you're it, waiting for it to happen. Yeah, but it doesn't deconsolidate yours. Right. There's a relativity there. Right. And that's experience dependent. Mm-hmm. That was based on when your brain created this this emotional learning that then goes on to form a rig, mm. you had different sensory stimuli than I did. Yeah. So there's a relativity there. Yeah. I think one example that it's at least is coming to my mind is, do you get like, um, uh, what is the term? Oh, like hangry? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I do not, and I often forget to eat. So I think this could be an amazing way yeah. of talking about this process. What do you think about that? Like, I think that you're absolutely insane, but also like incredibly strong. So 
how do you dissociate from right so i think it has something to do with our anticipatory system mm. like and i'm just wanting to like let's spin up a little bit about this because i think it's a great really like tangible example of that process because for me i don't have any clock that's like really navigating around food i'm not thinking about like when and my body doesn't really send me signals to do it so it's like i mainly rely on social cues or like i know that around noon i should probably eat i guess but to me it's not based on interoceptive stimuli mm. yeah that's so interesting you saying that makes me like all the more um aware that my hunger is often time-based not oh. like genuine hunger okay so i have these anticipatory cravings of time mm. so like if i don't eat by nine like i'm i'm i get hangry okay especially if i have coffee my metabolism is excited i'm ready to eat if i don't get food i'm i'm mad then around noon to one mm. but if i eat early maybe even like 11 but my relationship to eating is time a quiet based. time mm. For me, it's often where I turn off and have some quiet So do time. you think that in that then your the cue for eating is actually a response of your body saying we need some separation? I think so, yeah. That's so interesting. And it's also why like in grad school I had like six meals. Yeah, a day. Cause you're and, and I learned to moderate because I was like, <laughs> oh crap, if I just keep eating so many meals, like I'm out, I'm, I'm cholesterol at the roof or whatever. I don't even know diet terms. But well, and we were eating out of the vending machines. So yeah, we were not. That yeah, beef yeah. jerky's not doing it, buddy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it would be like a certain amount of stressor that is too far for me. Well, then I need to eat and have some like, I need to come into, you know, the syllabic response, cueing, yeah, very regulatory, yeah, hundred percent, yeah, yeah, parasympathetic. All the yeah, way. I think all of that mm -hmm. goes together to like my my emotional learning with eating is more based on my like yeah emotional need. Yeah, when well, you talked about how you have coffee and that excites your metabolism, and so you need food all the more. Yeah, for me, if I take a sip of coffee, I'm good. Like it will curb my if I'm having any type of like hunger response at all. It will just like send me into, nope, I'm good. Like we can go till like 3, 4 p.m. That's so crazy. Yeah. And to me, you know, thinking about what does food mean to me, I don't really have like that separation, even though when I think about it, I guess it is a lot of a slower process when I eat, but I don't know. That's so interesting. Yeah. From a like anticipatory standpoint yeah. for there to be a prediction error. Which illustrates, I, I like the food is part of it because food is like, there's a homeostatic Absolutely. need. Regulatory function. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also like an, a primary affective experience mm -hmm. of approaching, seeking, desiring, and getting food. Yeah. And I guess for me, like I wanted to avoid eating in my home as a young person because it was a lot, a lot of pressure. I guess yeah. like around that space of, and it was a time where this is interesting. It was a time where we were together more than we weren't like we didn't sit at the same table, but we were 
like converging on the dining room or the yeah, like same the kitchen context. And so there would be arguments or things like that. So perhaps my body learned to pair the need for food with actually going into a negative emotional space. So let's just cut off the need for food and we can avoid that. Yeah. And now we're into like probably a whole nother like series we need to do on this process of deaffrontation and entanglement Yeah, of how the, so the emotional learning mm. that your brain is making a rig of mm-hmm. representation of an interaction that becomes generalized around the sensory stimuli of food mm-hmm. then entangles subcortical networks and affective experiences that produces a behavioral activation of potentially avoidance and disinterest. Yeah. And because let's keep of going avoiding for something else. Like grief and loss. Yeah. Yeah. Nurture yeah. care is not there. It's actually going to be grief and loss and fear. Yeah. So I'm going to avoid that. Those are negatively valenced emotions. Yeah. I'm not going to touch those. Displeasurable. Yeah. 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 Yep. And those are like the amygdala's Mm -hmm. connection to the basal ganglia is like so intimate. Yeah. And how they're communicating and and coming to like reactivate or or push activation patterns in the brain to deaffrontate and alter behavioral expressions. Yeah. It's this. Yeah. I like that association a lot thanks for going on that one with me i appreciate that of course i think that's an interesting one yeah and that for as much as that was memory reconsolidation that's also neurosequential firing Mm -hmm. there's so much there but you also can see and i hope readers are catching this like how much reconsolidation is like the foundation for shift and change and like why it's so important to therapeutics is because of these learned patterns of neurosequential firing Mm -hmm. need to be reactivated and mismatched but how do you know what is a mismatch if you don't know the the sensory motor and affective experience behind the learning yeah and to what intensity those stimuli were registered yeah 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 let's jump to the second misconception yeah i'm going over do you want me to read it I was just making sure I got everything I wanted out of M1. Okay. I think I did. Well, we can always circle back around. Yeah. We're, we're really into nonlinear timelines <laughs> here. So Nonlinear developmental timeline. That's in one of our trainings. Yep. That's amazing. Uh, misconception number two, the disruption of reconsolidation is what erases a target learning. Another one. Got to sit with the language. What do you think about that one? So to me, the problem that stands out with it is that it's to me like a complete misunderstanding of what is really happening in the reconsolidation process as if the reconsolidation process is to blame for the emotional target learning. Like, so if you just disrupt that, you'll change the emotional target learning. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. 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 And, and maybe it's this like, and Eckert, I felt like this was one in which he was mostly, oriented towards language yeah like reconsolidation is not the thing we're disrupting it's what happens when a deconsolidated emotional learning has new has a mismatch experience with new stimuli paired with it that is relative to yeah, yeah. to the person mm-hmm. to that network yes that is reconsolidated it's yeah. like coming back together and he actually uses the he highlights and or he uh, italicizes the word utilizing 
the process of reconsolidation that actually erases the emotional learning. It's not through de- it's not through blocking it or disrupting it. It's actually through utilizing it that yeah. that process uh, carries itself out. Yeah, that erasure takes place. Yeah. What did you think about the studies that isolate the chemical process of reconsolidation and the endogenous or uh, organic kind of interpersonal process of reconsolidation? Ooh, that's a very yeah. Because yeah. the way that I think this misconception makes sense is in these chemical studies, they're isolating, they're using different drugs essentially to, um, once the emotional learning is evoked, they pair this drug with it, which blocks the reconsolidation process. And then they see a, what they call eraser yeah. in these studies, which is that there's no longer this emotional learning because we blocked the process of reconsolidation. We essentially unlocked the emotional learning yeah. and blocked its reconsolidation. So now they're not showing that behavior anymore yeah yeah which is tempting to believe at the at the base level and it makes sense which is why i think it's a misconceptualization at all yeah like yeah this one wouldn't be there if we didn't have that yeah if i could just totally keep an emotional learning from reconsolidating Mm -hmm. then i would that network would just i don't know evaporate like yeah like atrophy yeah just like have no need yeah yeah yeah, and so then all we have is like the other networks, but that's that's not how the brain works. No, again, if that were true, then we would become infinitely less adaptive to our environment. Yeah, it will reconsolidate. Yes. Yeah. We have to, or we're going to die. Yeah. 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 So in that, then intentional utilization of the reconsolidation process relies on the mismatch relativity principle. Mm. You still have to have the the prediction error. So in the reconsolidation process, which is enacted by the evoking the initial emotional learning, pairing then a relative Mismatches. mismatched experience, then initiating it, uh, the reconsolidation process within that window of the five hours after, yep. Yep. then you still have an intentional utilization of that process. And thus you're going to see most likely erasure. If not, then you have a problem with the relativity principle or some other non you know lack of safety or whatever yeah yeah and and fundamentally like at the base it's is this memory network that's been deconsolidated or another word would be like destabilized mm-hmm. adds like another connotation to it but this network that has been destabilized does it reconsolidate and get stronger in its like solidification of this is what we do. Mm. This is the behavioral activation I'm firing. This is the connections I'm going to make. That's a personification of that emotional learning circuit. Mm. Or am I going to become a new emotional learning? Yeah. It's kind of at the granular level, those are two options. Yes. Yes. I think that's an excellent point. Um, I also like that it talked about within this section the concept of dual focus yes, um, as being central to the process of um, memory reconsolidation. Because again, it highlights the issue with reconsolidation that doesn't lead to erasure. If yeah. there's not this felt sense of safety in the environment in which this emotional learning is being evoked and seeking to be erased, we may have the problem we talked about earlier on in the episode where we actually, it becomes more resilient yeah. to yeah. change. Yeah, and we could spin off for oh, wow. hours on that because of like the felt sense of I want reactivation. I want like in my practice I say 
I use port keys uh-huh. from Harry Potter as like the, we the have to metaphor for trauma. Yeah. yeah. I have to, like, we have to find those port keys because we need to touch them and find like how your system reactivates. And then we maintain a dual focus and staying present with your experiencing self. So there's this like collapsing potential. I've talked about this with actually clients just yesterday of the difference between, and this is Daniel Kahneman, the experiencing self and the remembering self. Mm -hmm. And in order to provide like a new learning and a mismatch experience, there has to be like the maintenance of the experiencing self. Mm. Even though neurosequentially the brain wants to collapse into the pure remembering self. Yes. To this leave is, the present moment. Yeah. This is a sensory stimuli that has meant this before. So I'm going to collapse completely into my remembering self and just act as in the ways that have been productive for me in the past. Mm-hmm. Rather than opening up to the current experiencing self that continues to integrate sensory stimuli that may provide the mismatch experience and then the new emotional learning. Yeah. I love the language um, because I think it's somewhat provocative in the way that he talks about it. It's a dual focus maintains a dissociation and subjective distance between conscious attention and the attended contents of traumatic memory and appears to be a critical ingredient in some trauma treatment procedures that achieve rapid lasting depotentiation of traumatic memory and cessation of PTSD symptoms. So it's through the process of simultaneous dissociation and subjective distance and attending to that content. Yeah. Like not staying away from it, but exercising this. Can we stay here and go back? Yeah. And can we come back here and go back in? Yeah. Which, you know, that to me brings up, I hear the word dissociation and I somewhat cringe uh-huh. at like his use of it yeah that's what i was yeah and, and we've talked about you know different writers across time using dissociation yes but then also like words like disformulation unformulation i have a different word yeah i wrote in the margin like i wonder if what he's talking about instead of like what he the operational definition of dissociation for this context of what he's saying is uh integrated pendulation of attention yes rather than a disin, uh, dissociation yes. from one or the other. Yeah, because the way we talk about it in, in our trainings and in the, a lot of the what you'll hear in the content that we just bring to our discussions is that dissociation is a process of the parasympathetic dorsal vagal system. Mm. And so that it's, an, it's inherently an activated um, but overactivated place where you want some activation in the emotional learning being evoked, mm-hmm. but to the point of dissociation where you're out of your window of tolerance, incapable of actually staying in that dual focus that he talks about. Yeah. So it is a difference of, of language. Yeah. 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 Just to clarify, just to clarify, you know, we already got the soapbox on disassociation and let's dissociation. come back to dissociation. Let's, let's keep nuancing it. Yeah. Um, is there any other part for misconception? No, misconception too. N- num- number two felt pretty, Pretty, pretty forward simple. for me. It was yeah. a shorter section. Yeah. So memory reconsolidation, um, we're looking at now kind of misconception three, which is erasure is brought about during the reconsolidation window by a process of extinction. Reconsolidation is an enhancement of extinction. Hmm. What do you think about that one? Is brought about during the reconsolidation by a process of extinction. Well... What does extinction really mean? Right. Extinction is a reprioritization 
of a strategy. We've said that over and over again. Yes. So to say that reconsolidation is an enhancement of extinction is actually to say like, well, you're not reconsolidating that network. You're prioritizing a whole nother behavioral sequence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those you're talking about two different things. Yeah. That's the first note I wrote was these are different neurobiological processes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, extinction being the process of reprioritization. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a jump of strategy mm. from one to another that are disassociated. Yes. They're not connected. They need, they're, they're there for different reasons mm. and they're, they're prioritized in that way. Yeah. But reconsolidation is this opening up of one of those strategies of learning mm. and providing mismatched experience. So it's a reactivation, mismatched experience, new learning mm. or no new learning and just a reconsolidation of that network to then be what it is. Yeah. I loved your example that you already gave of how you can use an extinction like procedure to end in reconsolidation um, by, you know, prioritizing a new behavioral pattern, um, but still maintaining the process of erasure by going back and, and looking at that and properly pairing a mismatched experience. Um, but at the same time, it's not through extinction that that's happening. It's leaving behind that memory uh, from and now an erased standpoint as opposed to an extinct standpoint. Yeah, and that to me, I think, is what you know he goes on to say in much of the explanation of this misconception is that you can still find extinction-based uh, research methodologies that are ending in reconsolidation as opposed to just extinction. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm curious about is to talk about, and this will be a good way, I think, to end this episode, is just to talk about memory reconsolidation being an invitational process Hmm. as opposed to a manualized, you know, you're you're complying with this modality. Yeah, yeah. I think that'd be interesting. Oh, yeah. And I even, I mean, my brain goes two different directions on on the in the way of clients but in the way of therapists as well yeah of you know what do we so much of reconsolidation mismatching and um just the whole process feels so embodied Mm. like it requires sensory stimuli it requires sensory motor stimuli requires sensory motor affective stimuli and it requires that those have the safety enough to become emergent into consciousness yes and that's even just intrapersonally. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone in, in myself. Yeah. Let alone interpersonally. Be kind of owned. Yeah. In the intrapersonal realm. Yeah. And so for me as a therapist, thinking like if I felt the pressure to do a manualized memory reconsolidation procedure, that pressure alone, I feel like it would be signaling that I need a certain emotional learning strategy Mm -hmm. rather than an openness of like the flow of the current moment. Mm. And then for the client of like, if I, if there's a felt sense of pressure, I'm going to ignite a dissociative strategy in you. Yeah. Like definitely an objective one. It may be sympathetic or activated, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's totally like many different um, response patterns as far as like somatic and nervous system expressions yeah. of that. But the pressure is going to produce 
I mean, and there's a threshold of pressure, mm-hmm. but the the pressure itself is going to produce a sort of strategy dependence. Mm-hmm. It's it, to me like the presence of pressure and manualization would, in my hypothesis, lead us more towards extinction oriented yeah. therapies, which again is not bad. Right. Like, we're not saying that's bad, but if if that's what we're consenting to work on in therapy, just that. Okay. Right. But if the desire and the consent is for, I want deep, like change. Characterological change. Yeah. Second order change. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. Extinction. But also like we need to be looking at erasure through memory reconsolidation. Yeah. And I wonder like even just for you subjectively, what that moment in time within the therapeutic environment is like where you're you're in an activated place where the emotional learnings are are in the moment now or in the present and you're just meandering in a way for this relative mismatched experience this prediction error and that pressure that you spoke of cuz i i think of extinction much the same way it is a forced process i mean you're you're changing your biology by force not by invitation so what is it like for you even as a therapist to sit in the room wanting to have the correct relative uh, mismatch experience and not wanting to force it on them but still being invitational do you see it kind of the question oh, yeah, 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 yeah 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 i was thinking of a, a client um just the other day who was just pulling me into the intersubjective space mm-hmm. just like with a chain came to therapy but did they really come to therapy because i feel like i'm the only one in the room yeah and and that's their own strategy it makes sense given their story and one of the things they said was you know i just want someone to tell me what to do and how to be and like in that moment is like this like uh like moment of decision almost for me of like do you step in and yeah okay like do i play that role and aid in sort of the like confidence increasing like strategies of hey let's just like try some different things but potentially augment yeah like, this your dependence on an other for survival and for like personal yeah. thriving your preoccupied attachment yeah yeah do i need you know am i augmenting that farther yes yeah or in that moment do i have a conversation about yeah, we could go there, but also like there's other options. And like even mismatch that desire. That That's a prediction learn- error right there. That, yeah. yeah, that emotional learning is, well, I just, what do I need? I need somebody to tell me what to do and then I'll just do it. Which that network had already been nuanced with not my parents, not my principal, not my teachers. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. okay, so go to a therapist. And right. Yeah, they'll tell you. And they're not any of those people. And I think that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. They're just there to tell me what to do. Yeah. And so it's this like moment of like, Ugh, I don't know. And so I chose, yeah. Yeah. I chose not to perform and actually to explore like, yeah. But I, I also kind of wonder like what it would be like if I didn't tell you what to do, but I was in a space where I helped you discover what's, what, doing feels most right for you Mm. and we could try a lot of different things but it's not just like me telling you what to do 
And this is to me like the suffering of therapy. He was like, yeah, no, I, I just really honestly want someone to tell me what to do. Yeah. Like, okay. That's where we're going then. Yeah. Like, I invited you into the mismatched experience and, and to deconsolidate and reconsolidate through like a new way of learning mm. and it was denied. So then I'm sure that network reconsolidated into no, really like further what I just needed someone to tell me what to do. Yeah. It's like, okay. And what did maybe, that feel like to you? Well, that, that really like I'm without like outside of the therapeutic room yeah. and the therapeutic hour, I'm not much for telling people what to do Yeah. anyway. So that like, that really like is like, ooh, Especially, I've had to learn to, this is like an interesting way to say this, but learn to perform that role. When it's in therapy. Chosen when by it's, the two of you. Yeah, like, when it's consensually chosen and and the limits of that role are held within the inner subjective space and my own like yeah. mental framework. I experienced an immense amount of grief Yep. in my body because not only because they're choosing to what I believe will potentially create more barriers in the future, but they are also revealing to me the, you know, the degree of pain they're actually under Mm -hmm. because to have an invitation like that to say, yeah, like I hear you and I totally feel the desire that you have for me to jump in and give you this prescriptive line to follow. But I'm also wondering if there's a deeper process here that we could uncover together. And yeah. really look to as this is a pattern throughout your life mm. that you have learned to survive by hiding in plain sight through obedience. Yeah. And for them to say, I mean, yeah, but I would really just love for you to give me something to obey. Yeah. Yeah, which feels like the higher, like we hadn't dropped down into the deep core yet. Yeah. We were still in like a higher level of a secondary process mm. into a tertiary process of like we hadn't quite gone down to like the core emotional learning of like I'm afraid of what happens if I start to just like be myself. Yeah. Choose what I'm going to do myself. Yeah. Um that so, was not available to the space yet no yeah 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 haven't gone there yeah so okay well i'll i'll float up higher yeah we can dance we'll up engage here. in yeah. some tertiary processing mm-hmm. and some you know getting new strategies but then hopefully eventually we can come back and yeah touch those other so i want to just summarize real quick and then we can wrap it up yeah sound good so misconception one reconsolidation and this is my translation sorry i should say that <laughs> <laughs> the bridger falcons yeah. translation reconsolidation BFT. is triggered through retrieval not the case. Nope. We need the mismatch prediction error and we need a safe environment uh, that also is able to discover the relative mismatch experience. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's and potentially what we desire is a new emotional learning. Oh yes. That would yeah. be fantastic. Yeah. That could be the outcome. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Perfect score. Uh, misconception two, uh, interrupting reconsolidation is what erases a target learning. No. It's actually through utilization of the reconsolidation process that facilitates erasure. But there are a couple of caveats. You need the relative mismatched mismatched experience and you need safety. It's through invitation. Misconception three, reconsolidation is enhanced extinction. It's 
it's actually just a taking it farther down the line. And what we said is basically, no, these are different, two different processes, two different neurobiological processes that are completely separate. Extinction is utilizing a disassociated network for the process of correctional experience, I guess you could, you could say, but then in memory reconsolidation, what we're actually dealing with is erasure and new emotional learning building yeah. on that mismatched experience in safety and connection. Yep. Okay. That sounds awesome. There it is. There's seven more to go. That's right. All we, the conversation. We told you this article was big. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I hope that um, this was something that you could engage with uh, along with Caleb and I. Um, yeah. We're very excited to be in this memory reconsolidation discussion. And Any messages for the listeners? <laughs> yeah. Jump on, read with us, or don't. I mean, yeah. Jamie, are, we are okay. putting the thing in the show notes, right? Okay, cool. Yeah, sweet. Thanks. Yeah. So link the article in the show notes. Um, go find it if you can. I think you um, can. Yeah, I, I think, think this it's, is open it's access. It's public access, yeah. 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 Um, thank you, Ecker, for doing that. Appreciate That's that. The, yeah, real shout out there. Uh, in a world full of very costly journals, that's a very nice thing to do. Yes, it is. So, Turn, maybe he thinks it's important. Yeah. People oh. should read it. Wow. Crazy. Imagine that. The public. That we would do something out of importance. What? Wow. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us and and rocking it with us. Hope you guys took multiple things away, but if even if you just took one and got super excited on one breadcrumb, follow it, be curious about it, play with it. That's our desire for making this podcast. Absolutely. So. Take care. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice That is an EMDR podcast hosted by EMDR-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. If you enjoy what you hear on these episodes and are interested in speaking with one of us at Beyond Healing Institute, we would love for you to reach out about our consultation opportunities. Of all the many things that we do, Consultation is one of the things that we enjoy most. We love supporting other clinicians in conceptualizing their cases from a neurobiological and nervous system-informed perspective. We offer individual and group consultation for somatic integration and processing, 
as well as for EMDR therapy. Individual consultation is a great way to get personal time to reflect on your cases and how you and your work influence one another. Group consultation offers so many opportunities for learning and connection with other like-minded clinicians. Our greatest mission at Beyond Healing Institute is to offer opportunities for professional development and create a supportive community in the field of mental health. Beyond Healing Institute is excited to announce that we're moving. Okay, well, we're not moving our building, but we're moving our trainings, continuing education resources, and community events to Canvas. This will help you as a member of the community to stay in contact with other members of the Beyond Healing community, while also providing a platform that brings consistency and convenience to all of our trainings and course offerings. Canvas is an online learning management system that will be your home base for all things Beyond Healing, as well as a virtual campus that will house all of our trainings and continuing education resources. We're so excited to invite you to our virtual campus on Canvas and we hope to see you there soon.